stewardship and how it is really the combination of attributing worth to God. That's where you get the word worship. It's, it's worth and ship, and that's where you get the idea of attributing value that's due his name. And I think that's what we do every week, and I'm just so privileged to be a part of our church body and that worship is a, an incredible value and theme of what we do and why we exist a couple of things that are happening this week. This is Palm Sunday today, and it's our opportunity to look at the meekness and humility of Jesus Christ in the Word of God this morning. And then we're also anticipating the Passion Week as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday. And on Friday, we are going to celebrate together uh, the coming together to remember Good Friday and to have a sober time of reflection, examining ourselves as we remember the ultimate humility of Christ as he was nailed to the cross. We're going to do that by gathering together for a time of eating, and and then we have tables that are out here in the worship area, and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and I'll give a meditation on the cross. And then also, it will be just, I think, a unique time to gather in the year as a family because we have what's called a potluck supper. It's at 6 p.m., And I was told to let you know to come early for that and bring your food so we can kind of begin and begin to eat as you come. Some people like to call potluck uh, pot providence. I don't know, sort of take the luck out of the idea. But anyway, we're going to have a pot something and and show up on this Friday for that. Please be uh, remembering that that's coming. And it's it's just a great time where we're going to worship God together. On Sunday will be Resurrection Sunday. Be early for the services because we might have some more people coming in town and visiting our church on that particular Sunday. This time I'm going to invite Randy Carlberg up. He's going to tell us some things about missions and youth missions and things we're going to be praying about. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. (laughs) Hey, tonight uh, we have one of my favorite things uh, that our church does during the year, and that is the coffee house. It's it's put on by the youth. We... um, we, it is a fundraiser for youth missions from our church here, and we are going to, we're going to have a good time. It is not a service. It is a, I'm not exactly sure what it is, variety show maybe, <laughs> but we have, uh, we have desserts, we have coffee, and, uh, and it's used as a fundraiser for youth missions. Uh, right now, the school has a missions trip that is uh, just coming back today from, from New Lotto, they, uh, and Marge Parker's on that one and some others. Um, Nate uh, and Caleb Davis are, are and, and others are on a missions trip to Cambodia, and they'll be coming back this week. Um, and we are going to do uh, uh, a review of last year's trip to, to Mexico. We're not going to do a Mexico missions trip this year. We're going to do, do a review of last year's Mexico missions trip as, long, as well as uh, tell you about Tenalian Bible Camp and what we do there. We have youth from our church that go to Victory Bible Camp, that go to Solid Rock Bible Camp, that minister there. And uh, we also have uh, Mountain View, and, and we, we go three times a, a year and do some things for Mountain View kids, and, and so we'll give you a little review on that. And we have uh, kind of a new thing, an, an opportunity that uh, I'm going to tell you about tonight. It's to go to a, a village uh, just uh, south of Homer a little ways, and here in about a month, and, and we're going to do an outreach there and uh, just share the gospel with, uh, with some kids there in, in this village. So a little teaser. Uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about that tonight, but it'll, it'll, be, a, it'll be a neat uh, neat trip that we're looking forward to. But 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock tonight, it will be a fun time right here. 
come and uh, enjoy time together. It'll it'll be good. So, Absolutely. thank you. Well, thank you, Randy. And what I want us to do now is pray together to set our time for the Word of God, but also to pray for world missions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege to bow before your throne and to come before your word. Your word is forever settled in heaven. It is spoken to us and, Lord, it's captured in our Bibles so that we can grow in grace and so that we can hear from the lips of Jesus the Great Commission. And, Lord, I pray that we would take to heart the fact that people indeed need the Lord. They need to be discipled in Christ We need to be making disciples and seeing them baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Really, it's true. I've heard it said that there are people who who go on the mission field. There are people who send other people to the mission field. And then there are those who are disobedient. And Lord, we don't want to be disobedient. We want to be about your mission. We want to see people come into the kingdom of God. Lord, if we really understood the reality of hell and its, how eternal it is and how it's inescapable in its punishment, we would catch a new uh, passion for missions because, God, we have the message of life. So I pray that we can come to events like tonight and support youth missions and our missionaries that we support on an ongoing basis as a local church. And God, that you would give to us more missionaries that we could support so that we could invest our resources in eternity and and give to you, give to your heart, which is a heart for missions. Lord, as we turn now to the word of God and we're going to look at Jesus Christ, your son, who is the exemplary missionary, the humble shepherd who came as a servant and will now come as our king. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and make us receptive to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. To set our time this morning, I want to begin by reading Matthew 5. And I want us to look at one verse. That's verse 5 of Matthew chapter 5. This is one verse from the Beatitudes, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek... For they shall inherit the earth. Now, when I think of the word meek or being meek, the idea of exuding meekness, I think of one person. One person comes to mind, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, on what we call Palm Sunday, came into Jerusalem. And Instead of coming to town as a king, robed as a king, sort of enthroned on a white stallion, he instead came on the foal of a donkey. What Zechariah prophesied would happen in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus came in on a beast of burden, a laboring animal. Jesus came in as a man of meekness and humility. And he is our example. He is who is the personification of these beatitudes, these call 
these calls for blessing, this is who Jesus is. Jesus, in how he lived and in how he died on the cross, revealed the soul of meekness. He was the meekest man who ever lived. What does meekness look like, really? Meekness looks like Jesus who came in as a servant riding on the foal of a donkey. And then, if you fast forward, Jesus standing next to Pontius Pilate on center stage, on the porch of judgment. He's standing next to Pilate, who is the personification of power at the time. He's he's standing as a proxy for Rome. That's Pontius Pilate speaking for the most powerful nation and government there was in the world. Pilate, who looked like he was completely in control, was a prisoner of his own pride. Think about Pilate. He was completely out of control. He was ambivalent. He was going, look, Jesus, I can find no fault with you. But at the same time, he's going to the crowds, pandering to them, saying, what should I do? Completely out of control. Next to Pilate, you have Jesus. And Jesus, who looks like the subdued prisoner, is utterly free. Absolutely free. Serving the Father in complete control. And you know what that is? That is the essence of meekness. Meekness is humility that is sustained. Sustained humility. It's not just a choice to humble yourself in the moment. It is the idea that you are long fused under the power of the Holy Spirit being humble. In the midst of accusation, in the midst of temptations, in the midst of trials, in the midst of any life circumstance, meekness is sustained humility. Humility that, that is remarkable to other people as they would see you be meek. It's one thing to say, man, that was a humble gesture. It's another thing to say, that is a genuinely meek person. And that's who we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to live like he lived, and we want to live in the way that he died. What do I mean by that? Well, I was looking at the seven statements, statements of Jesus Christ as he was dying on the cross, the seven sayings of Christ, the seven words of Christ, as some put it, and this really captures meekness because this is Jesus on the cross pushed to the extreme in terms of personal challenge. And this is what was coming out of his heart. We, you know, it's in one sense, you look at how meekness, you, you see how meekness looks, but here on the cross, you hear how meekness sounds. This is the audio of meekness. Number one, first statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Number two, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Number three, woman, behold your son. And to John, he said, behold your mother. Number four, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Number five, he says, I thirst. Number six, he says, it is finished or tetelestai. Number seven, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
We need to live the meekness that Jesus exuded in the words that he was speaking in his death. We need to live in the way that Jesus died. He practiced what he preached. He was a meek man. And if you look at the Beatitudes, this list of Beatitudes here in verses 2 through 10, each Beatitude is a reflection of Jesus Christ. If you think of the Beatitudes, you're thinking about Jesus Christ. Because we know as we look at these Beatitudes that we cannot live them in and of ourselves. We cannot live them by our own strength. We can't. These Beatitudes, they, they, they take us apart, don't they? They, they disassemble our self-made religion. They, they say, you know what, your Christianity that you think you can live, you can't live it because this standard is too high. And yet, as we look at Jesus, who lived this standard perfectly, we look to God's grace and we say, God, let us be like Jesus. Because that's what the Beatitudes are. It's a call to be like Jesus Christ. It's a call to be approved by our Heavenly Father that we are members of the kingdom of God. Remember, the kingdom of God is a mega theme through this sermon. Matthew 5 through 7. Kingdom of God actually brackets the Beatitudes. You've got the kingdom of God mentioned in verse 3 and then it's re-mentioned in verse 10. It's about being in the kingdom and being affirmed that you are there. This sermon, as I said last week, is an unlivable sermon, and that's what makes it so compelling. Kent Hughes called this sermon, he said, The sermon is one that makes us face ourselves like no other, a violent standard. Jesus is propped up by Matthew in this gospel as the king of kings, the king of the Jews. And so what we have here is we have the monarch who's coming to deliver his kingly manifesto. For how to participate in his kingdom. Jesus was breaking the silence from the Old Testament, ending in Malachi. You have this intertestamental period, and then Jesus shows up, and this is the first long teaching of Jesus where he's saying, Look, this is how you can be blessed as a kingdom member, as a kingdom citizen. And what he does here is he's deconstructing self righteousness. We know we can't live it. Again, Matthew 5 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, what? exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's that very standard, it's that very standard that makes us long to live it. That's what the Christian heart does. It's just, just this paradox. It's, it's in the, the standard for holiness makes us hungry for holiness. It's like we want it even more. I've heard it kind of put this way. It's the idea that, um, you, know, you, you know, you don't really want to watch a scary movie. But because you know it's going to be so scary, that makes you want it all the more. Do you ever, do you ever, do you ever have that sort of design in your, in your mind? You go, man, I really don't want to watch that. Or I really don't want to go into that haunted house. I don't want to do that. And ooh, it makes me want it all the more. Well, the Christian version of that is the standard is whole, so high that, oh, to be able to live it by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, how great it is. How sweet it is to, to live in this blessing. By his grace. Now there are nine words in a row that are blessed. There are nine blesseds here that are repeated. And they offer to us eight different concepts or eight different attitudes. And each one of these attitudes flies in the face of the world's version of blessing. The world says, look, you know, muscle up, 
kind of build your own life out of your own inner strength, wake up each day and, you know, get your cup of coffee and go for the gusto, that kind of thing. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a different path. There's a different way for blessing in life. The world's blessing is temporal. It's the kingdom down here. And he's saying there's a humble path, a narrow road where you can have kingdom blessing. And that's what he's laying out before us. Not a survival of the fittest, but who will take the challenge to be humble, to be humble. Yeah, if you're looking at um, taking notes, you can put these beatitudes in this way. Members of the kingdom live eight attitudes while holding on to eight promises. Again, the word blessing is not superficial happiness. We have these eight attitudes, not, not as some sort of way to earn a happy feeling in our hearts. We, we have these attitudes because we have a transformed heart. And we long to be approved by our Heavenly Father. This is not a man-centered, superficial happiness. This is the Christian looking up to God, desiring his approval in our lives. It's participating in God's nature. God is blessed in and of himself. He is self-sustained in his blessedness. Psalm 72 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. He is blessed in and of himself. And we are coming under that blessing and participating in his nature by living this path. This path that's the kingdom path for the Christian. Here's the first attitude again. The first attitude is found in verse 3 and it is being poor in spirit or having a poverty of spirit. Remember Jesus, he, he gathered the crowds up to him as he was ascending a mountain to deliver this message. He was giving a high message on a high peak. And the crowds were coming to him and coming around this rabbi who was unique and compelling because he was speaking of his own authority, not appealing to other sources. He was answering all the questions that were raised in the Old Testament. And he opens his mouth and begins to speak and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not those who are lowly in financial poverty, but those who are willing to go low in their state of soul. Those who are willing to be humble. They were rejecting the ability to gain God's favor in and of themselves. And they were receiving a promise. There are those who receive the promise of verse 3. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Second attitude is being mournful over sin. It's what Thomas Watson said. He said, the fire of sin about us makes necessary the water of tears to quench it. Like I said last week, to be brutally honest with ourselves is to know that we are utterly sinful through and through. And the man or woman who takes this path is someone who is honest with him or herself about your sin. And it's where you say, listen, I need to weep over my sin. I reject the world's medicine for sin, which is to laugh it off, to watch sitcoms and stand-up comedians and, and to just laugh with them about sin. No, instead, I'm going to call my sin out and recognize that I need grace. It's meant for us, sin is meant to make us mourn. 
The promise is comfort. We receive comfort from God when we do this. We receive uh, the gift of repentance and grace that showers down from heaven. You've experienced it as the Christian. When you call out your sin to God, you make it right. You understand the promise of Hebrews 9 that the blood of Jesus Christ through the eternal spirit is purifying your conscience from dead works to serve a living God, right? You have a clear conscience. I mean, that is the joy of my testimony. I, I remember living from week to week to week for the next thrill in life, the next weekend, the next opportunity to sin, the next opportunity to sort of forget about myself and to deny that I'm a sinner. And then there was preaching, there was discipleship, there was church, there were these, these opportunities where God was pouring grace in. But ultimately, everything culminated in my life when for the first time, Ever, I was bowing before God and I was granted this comfort in repentance. It was the closest I had ever come to God because it was the first time I was real about my sin and God forgave me and it was the joy that I could not forget. And I still can't shake loose from it. It's the joy of our salvation. It's comfort. Thirdly, thirdly. And by the way, all of these beatitudes, they string together as pearls So they all are interconnected. Being poor in spirit builds on mourning over your sin, and mourning over your sin builds on being meek. The third attitude that the Christian is to have is being personally meek. Again, what is meekness? Meekness is sustained humility. It's it's an ongoing humility. It's a quality that is undeniably unique and spirit-empowered. It's one thing to say, man, that's a humble person. It's another thing to actually see a person who is meek. John Wycliffe, he translated the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, as blessed be mild men. In classical Greek, the word meek is used for soothing medicine. It's it's called a breezy word. It's a mild word or a caressing word. It's a non-negotiable. You might say, look, I'm not naturally meek. I'm kind of naturally sort of tough in my veneer, and I, I just don't get it. I, 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 can't, I can't really connect with this. But you need to understand, being meek is a given for the Christian. The fruit of the Spirit exemplifies meekness. Be, to be Spirit-filled is to be humble And it's to be self-controlled. That's meekness when you put those two things together. Now let me give some clarifications. When I talk about meekness, this is not the same as what the world sees as weakness. This is not worldly weakness. This is not indolence. This is not lethargy where you just kind of sit back on the couch all day. This is not, you know, wow, you know, I heard this sermon and in, in Matthew 5 it says I could be meek. So I'm going to be meek all day on the couch, you know. I mean, that, that's not what's going on here. It's not spinelessness. It's not where you you, you shrink back from challenges. It's not indecisiveness. It's not someone who lacks confidence. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a uh, preacher from last century, I mentioned last week, he preached at the Westminster uh, Chapel in London for years and years as an expositor. He was a medical doctor. That, that was his doctoral degree. He was a medical doctor before he was a preacher and pastor. And so he gives a lot of medical and uh, sort of psychological illustrations. And this is one of them. 
He says that meekness is not biological or temperamental. He says it's like the kind of thing you get in animals. Like one dog is nicer than another. One cat is nicer than another. I mean, you've seen that, right? We don't get, you know, a, a free pass if we're just more naturally gentle or, we don't, you know, where we say, well, well, look, I'm meek. That's not the essence of meekness here. Or on the other hand, if you say my temperament isn't to be gentle, I'm kind of rough and tough, and, and so I don't have to do this, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about one person being nicer than another person. We're not talking about someone who just says, look, I, I live for peace at all costs. You know, if there's going to be any tension in a relationship or any challenge here or there, hey, I'm backing off because I will will have peace at any price. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, Our culture says, look, just agree to disagree agreeably. Just let things stand. And for the Christian, we can be influenced by that. Even in matters of biblical principle, we could say, you know, let's just be meek. And that's, you know, it's a misapplication. Let's just be meek and, and let things go. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Meekness is defined in terms of spirit-wrought strength that's under control. Where you're not at center stage, you're sustained in humility, but there is an inner strength that coincides with it. Well, first of all, it's a non-negotiable. It's not something you can let yourself out of. And secondly, meekness is the opposite of anger. I mean, now we've moved from, what, preaching to meddling. I mean, to be angry is to not be meek. Meekness and anger do not coexist. Anger is oftentimes the sin that's done behind closed doors. But if you are angry, you are not obeying and following what Jesus designed for you in your life. You can't be a vengeful person that desires justice to be served and say that you are meek. There was a man in the Old Testament named Jonah. And as the story ends, he was not a meek person. We don't know if he ultimately repented of his anger. But if you look back in Jonah chapter 4, you understand why Jonah really did not want to go to Nineveh to cry out against it. And to deliver God's message that they needed to repent. The lesson of Jonah is learned more through the life of the prophet than through the message that he gave. Jonah was not a compassionate person. He did not want God to display his graciousness and mercy, his slow to anger character towards this city that Jonah hated. Jonah hated Nineveh because Nineveh represented his enemy. They they were like Nazi Germany against His country. And so he did not want to deliver even a message that they needed to repent because perhaps they would repent and God would give them grace. He didn't have any time or place for that outcome. Look at verses 1 and 2 in Jonah 4. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please, look at the extreme of of his anger here. This is the ultimate extreme. Please take my life from me. 
For it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's having a fit. He's having an anger fit. And it's sort of this passive-aggressive thing where he's, he's blowing up, he's blowing steam, he's popping off at God. I mean, think about the hubris and, and just, the, the, just the ugliness of his sin that's on his sleeve. He's being angry all over the place. Then he's completely passively saying, and Lord, just take my life. Like, I'm so mad at you, and just take my life and end it. Terrible. Gets worse. Look at verse 8 and 9. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He's up on the hillside looking for a grandstand seat to watch God wipe out this city and these people that he hated. He's bivouacked in the desert east of the city, hoping God would rain down fire and brimstone on it. And God didn't. God instead sent a scorching east wind on Jonah. And again, he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I mean, he just, just keeps showing what's in his heart and it just gets ramped up and ramped up and worse and worse. You know, a person like this is absolutely opening themselves up to satanic attack. You say, how do I tie that together? Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Do not, or be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your, what? Anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. You say, what does spiritual warfare look like? Well, first and foremost, it looks like your own personal holiness So often, the commands in the New Testament are tightly and uniquely tied to our obedience, tying our obedience with spiritual warfare. And if we are humble and we are meek people, then we are more protected from the enemy. But if we are out of control, being angry, you know, yelling at our kids or yelling in the house or yelling at other people... Or smoldering inside and bottling it up. You know what's happening? Satan has an inroad into your life. That's what this is saying. Paul says, deal with your sin so that you will not be vulnerable to satanic attack. Meekness and anger do not coexist. But let me thirdly clarify that meekness and zeal are absolutely interlocked. Meekness and anger cannot coexist, but meekness and zeal are required to exist because they existed in the life of Jesus Christ. Again, meekness is not passivity. Meekness is Holy Spirit humility under control. In the Old Testament, the man who is the example of meekness was Moses. Numbers 12.3 says that Moses was very meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth. One preacher looked at Moses, though, to kind of strike the balance, and he said, Look, Moses killed an Egyptian who was beating up Hebrew Hebrew slaves. He faced Pharaoh to demand the release of his people. And so he was so angry at the orgy that Aaron and the people were having around the golden calf that he smashed the first set of the Ten Commandments. So Moses was not wimpy. (laughs) He was not someone who just laid back in the face of adversity. Moses was not sinless, 
But Moses also was meek. Exodus chapter 3, when Jesus met Moses in the land of Midian, in the burning bush, which was a bush that undoubtedly Jesus Christ was speaking through, a bush that was miraculously not being consumed, though it was burning. And Moses was called to confront Pharaoh. And in verse 11, we see Moses' meekness on display. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You want to be meek? Let me give you a a really nice little pithy biblical phrase to use in your life. Just say, Who am I? Modern translation, Who do I think that I am? I mean, yeah, we're made in the image of God. We're at the pinnacle of God's creation. I grant that. We have wisdom. We we read the word of God. We have clarity with the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us in our life. But if you want to be meek and be like Jesus, just start with the words of Moses. Who am I that I should go? Why me? Why should I do this or that? Who do I think that I am? It's a great way as an entry point into this blessing of God. Meekness. Jesus was meek. Jesus was one who said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Why is Jesus so inviting? Because he said, I am gentle. A lot of translations say, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Meekness. Jesus was humble and he was safe in his humility. It wasn't something where he's humble one second and then boom, now he's unsafe. He was safe because he was meek. And in your ministry and in your life, if people think and believe that you are meek, you know, not a perfect meekness, but genuine, genuinely sustained in humility, you're going to be approachable. You're going to be a place that's safe, a place where people will seek to find rest. That was Jesus Christ. But Jesus, at the same time, did not compromise in zeal. The disciples, after they saw him turn the money changers' tables over and and create the cat of nine tails and, and whip people in the temple because they were using the temple of God as a house of trade, they remembered a verse and connected it to Jesus. John chapter 2, verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was consumed, consumed with zeal in his heart for God and God's holiness. And that's why he responded in that way, in that circumstance. But you know what? Jesus was always meek at the same time. Jesus always had a compassion for sinners. I mean, just think about it. Jesus interacted with so many different kinds of sinners and exuded this kind of meekness. He said in Matthew 12, a bruised reed, he will not break, and a smoldering wick, he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. So while Jesus was ministering, He encountered people that were like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, and he was gentle to them. He was gentle towards them. When you think of a bruised reed, you should think of kind of a swamp marshland where you have a cattail. A cattail is that long reed that's weighted 
at the tip top of the, of the reed where it's easily broken. You know, a kid likes to go into the swamp and play with the cattail and go back and forth like this. And then it breaks and it's like, oh man, my game is over, right? You know, it's, it's easy to break. You just wobble it a little bit and it just falls over. That's the bruised reed that Jesus is talking about. It was a cattail. It was fragile. And Jesus, when he encountered people who were sinful, who didn't understand him, who would kind of put him off, Jesus did not crush those people. And then you have a smoldering wick. That's like an ember, the the last bit of orange fire that's on a wick that's getting ready to blow out. And instead of Jesus just coming along and going, okay, you're just about done. I'm going to just end it. Instead of doing that, Jesus would would cup the wick and and blow gently on it to bring some life back to a person's soul. That's the ministry of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. He ministered to sinners who were adulterers, like the woman at the well. Instead of blowing her away, I mean, here you have sort of a racial dimension. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. She's not understanding things. He's saying he's the living water, and she's not completely getting it. And then he goes to her heart and exposes very gently that she has five husbands. Translation, she's living in immorality and unrepented adultery. He's going after her heart. He didn't snuff out her wick. He didn't break the reed, he helped her. And then she became a Christian and an evangelist in that moment. He went after Zacchaeus, who was ripping everybody off and said, let's eat together. Let me, let me enjoin myself with you, you who are hated. He, he ministered to Nicodemus, who was filled with religiosity and was not understanding the message of Jesus Christ. And by, at, at cloak of night, Jesus met with him and explained the law of God to him to reach his heart. This is what we're called to be. This is how we are called to live as believers. Being meek, being approachable, and reaching people and reaching their hearts. All right, let me give you another quote. I put it up on the screen here. A quote from Lloyd-Jones... And it's a place to begin in terms of how to be meek. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Finally, I would put it like this. We, who, we are to leave everything, ourselves, our rights, our cause, our whole future in the hands of God. And especially so if we are suffering unjustly. D.I. Carson put it differently, but makes the same point. He says, individually, each man tends to assume without thinking that he is at the center of the universe. Therefore, he relates poorly to the four billion others who are laboring under a similar delusion. We need to break out of our own delusion. We, We don't need to be a legend in our own minds, do we? It's easy to do that. You have to break out of that by humbling yourself to the cross and to Jesus. We need to look at ourselves and say, who do I think that I really am? And then we need to look at Jesus and see who he really is. Meekness meekness brings some very peculiar, unique temptations. 
You know, to be humble and to work at our own personal humility is to soul search in private. But to be meek is to try to live out your humility before other people. And how difficult is it if someone says to you, you know, in the way that you spoke or the way that you acted or the choice that you make, it just didn't come across as humility. I mean, that's real difficult to take, right? The, the, the posture that you kind of want to come back with is, you know, putting your guard up and saying, you know, you don't know who I am and, you know, you, you really don't know my motive. And let me just kind of talk through uh, why I did what I did or, or you just kind of ignore it, you know, and just say, well, thank you for your opinion. Thank you. Bye-bye. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. But instead, we should think, wow, if he really knew my heart, if he really knew how sinful I really am at the depth of my soul, then he would be saying a lot more. And that's the medicine we need as we think through being meek. It's difficult to hear from others that we are not meek. But this is a quality that we cannot hide and we cannot fake. What's the promise? The promise is found in verse 5. You will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Approved by God. You are a kingdom citizen if this is your life. You are a man or woman of meekness and you are affirmed as someone who will inherit the earth. What does Matthew mean by this? Well, Matthew is quoting Jesus and Jesus is quoting Psalm 37, 9 through 13. It's what we read for our scripture reading this morning. The psalmist, David, is comparing evildoers with the righteous. He's comparing Israelites who are looking to the inheritance of the land that's given to them, literal land, which is the promised land. And David is saying, that land is for you, Israelites, because you are meek compared with the evildoers who will not receive that land. Verse 9 of Psalm 37 says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. What is the land? What is the land for us? We inherit the land in two senses. We're not like the nation of Israel looking to a particular piece of property. As Christians, what we have found in Christ is contentment. By faith, we have the land. What do I mean by that? Meek people They believe that they have everything. Why? Because they don't want anything else. When you're genuinely meek and you have a, catch this, a sustained humility, where the Spirit of God is blessing your heart and you're not trying to take a worldly track or a worldly means for gaining more stuff to make you happy, but all of your satisfaction is found in Christ, then you have everything. You have the land. 2 Corinthians 6.10 is where Paul put it this way. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. By faith, you have a blessed heart in Christ. And you believe that you have everything. Look at the paradoxes here. Paul said, look, you know, rejoicing, sorrowful, but rejoicing. Poor, but rich. Having nothing, possessing everything. It's the same path 
that Jesus presents in the Beatitudes. If you're poor in spirit, you've got the kingdom of heaven. If, you're, if you mourn, you're comforted. If you're meek, you inherit the earth. You have everything. These are the paradoxes of the Christian life. Paul in prison lived it out. He was sitting in a Roman cell, writing to the Philippians, thanking them for how they had ministered to him. He being a missionary, how he had, was well satisfied and how they had participated in gospel ministry with him. Why? Because they gave him resources. But he said, look, I, I've had much and I've had little, but the secret to being content is learning to live with a lot or a little bit. That's the secret. It's meekness. It's meekness. It's sustained humility. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul was strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a meek life as a prisoner, as a reflection of Jesus Christ. All right, now, we do inherit the land by faith in that way because we inherit contentment. But secondly, we also inherit the land literally in heaven. In heaven. Heaven means a couple things. There's going to be a 1,000-year millennial reign where the earth is ruled by Christ literally for a thousand years. I believe that from Revelation chapter 20. And we inherit that, that rule and reign with Christ. But ultimately, Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Ultimately, we look to that heaven and that earth, And that's the land that we will inherit, a physical reality in heaven where we will eat supper with, worship with, and enjoy relationships and people with with your real identities still intact in heaven together, worshiping God for all of eternity. That's what we inherit. That's the blessing of being a kingdom citizen. Okay, so to wrap up, what does it mean to be meek? How do we live it out? How do we live our life in the way that Jesus lived it? And was meek. And when he was dying on the cross, how he died in meekness. Well, my points are going to be wrapped around the seven sayings of Jesus Christ. And hopefully these will help you for application. Again, these points, uh, we, we print them off for you and they're online as well. First of all, the first statement of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 21. You know what meekness means? That means you're willing to forgive people. You're willing to let things go. Sustained humility, when the Spirit of God makes you humble enough for that to be sustained in your life, you're willing to release a debt that you believe was owed to you by someone. Where someone hurts you, and it's like they owe you a debt. Forgiveness is saying, I release that debt. You're forgiven. You're set free. It recognizes the sin dilemma in other people. You see that other people must be blinded by their sins and they need grace. And so you give it to them. When Jesus prayed the prayer, forgive them for they know not what they do. That prayer was actually fulfilled at Pentecost where many of those persecutors who were lobbying accusations and mean statements at Jesus, those very people were transformed at Pentecost when 3,000 people were saved. And so God actually answered that prayer where God said, forgive them. Number two, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Being meek means you extend grace. You're gracious to people. 
Jesus on the cross gave grace to one of the people next to him that was there because he deserved to be there. That sinner on the cross, who was the thief, was graced by God and by Jesus Christ because Jesus was others-centered even while Jesus himself was being murdered. It means that you're able to extend hope when you are meek. Number three, woman, behold your son, behold your mother, John 19. Being meek means that you are loving. You're a loving person. You care about other people. Jesus cared about the heart of his mother when Jesus was dying on the cross and made provision for her. It means that you care about the needs of others. Number four, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Being meek means that you are extreme. Now again, being meek does not give you license to be milk toast, license to be a couch potato, license to be passive. Jesus was on the front lines putting himself in the most extreme and vulnerable of circumstances imaginable. And that is where Jesus was willing to put himself in a place where he was separated in fellowship from his father. That's what he did. Jesus was willing to lose everything for his heavenly father. And we need to be able to do the same. That's what meekness looks like. Number five, I thirst. Being meek means you are willing to be vulnerable. Jesus, as the God-man, was fully man. And instead of bowing up in proud self-sufficiency, made himself vulnerable and said, I thirst. He himself did not even act in self-sufficiency. Being meek means you are not self-sufficient. Number six, it is finished. Being meek means you follow God's will. To die. When Jesus died on the cross, he, re- he accomplished a redemption for all who would believe. He secured salvation for the church. That's what he did. Being meek means that he was willing to be used of God. And when you are meek, God will use you in profound ways. Number seven, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Being meek means you have a heavenly father. You have a heavenly father. Being meek means you trust in your heavenly father. When Jesus died on the cross and he said, I am entrusting myself into your care, he was recognizing that fellowship had been restored and he was entering into the joy of his inner Trinitarian fellowship with his heavenly father. When we are affirmed as sons and daughters in the kingdom, we know that we have relationship with God. That's what, it li- that's what it means to live in this blessing and participate in God's blessed nature. just want to finish with one verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. This is Jesus' heart on the cross. First Peter 2, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. My prayer for you and for me is that we would continue to entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father and we would experience the blessing of meekness even this week together. Let's stand for our closing prayer together. If you have any spiritual need whatsoever, we want to be there for you. We have some counselors lined up over here next to the information table. And we want to inform you and pray with you. And also, if you need Christ, we want to make ourselves available to you and humbly pray with you that you can enter into this kingdom blessing that's described here in Matthew 5. At this time, I'm going to call up Dave Parker, one of our elders, and he's going to close us in a word of prayer. The old preacher said, meekness and humility, you want to be careful of asking the Lord for those because he may send into your life opportunities to practice that. What a great message we've heard this morning from the word of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you do send into our lives day by day and moment by moment opportunities for us to be like Christ, especially in this area of meekness. Heavenly Father, as we seek to follow him, make us a meek people. As we seek to cede control of every corner of our lives to you, make us people of meekness, free to be the people you want us to be, free to follow the will of God in our lives. So go with us as we celebrate this very important Sunday. We ask that your strength would be with us, your Holy Spirit would guide us as we walk with Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.